425, I am not sure that I thought that I was ever going to die. I'm really not sure that I thought that I was going to die. Until that point in my life, I just seemed to act without any sense whatsoever of my own mortality. What I would do is I would consume whatever I wanted to consume, and I would do whatever I wanted to do, and I had not one thought for either my short-term or my long-term health. I honestly don't think, even mid-twenties, don't think I ever thought that I was going to die. Then one day, that changed. Um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one afternoon, I developed this intense, sharp pain in my chest. Never felt anything like it before or since. Incredible pain it just would not go away and it brought me to the point of losing consciousness and violently ill and it just it just wouldn't go so what happens i i was rushed straight away to the hospital and all of these tests and procedures there for hours and hours uh, all without any answer uh, i was sent away no diagnosis at all looking back on it I honestly think that was one of the best days of my life. You see, by being confronted with my mortality and my death, I began from that point on to consider my life and consider how I was living. You see, now, because of this uh, moment in my life, I knew that I was going to die. Like I knew now, I was weak, I was, I was frail, I was vulnerable. So I began to think, well, hang on, what am I doing with my life? What am I going to do with this apparently short time that I have on earth? Do, do you see what I'm, I'm saying? Viewing my death, it really helped me to live. Well, tonight in Ecclesiastes, I tell you what's going to happen. We are all in here going to be shaken with a violent pain in our chest that's what that's what awaits you this evening Uh, because not for the first time tonight solomon is going to point you to your death he's going to show you your death this evening from these verses why to motivate you as a child of god to live in a certain way for your god's glory he will confront you with death to show you how to live for the honor of Christ Jesus. That's what happens in Ecclesiastes 11 and the first part of chapter 12. So, that said, I would encourage you to to have Scripture open in front of you. And let's notice, first of all, this truth, that because we are dying, we must, as Christians, we must be generous. That's the first theme here. Because we are dying... We've got to be generous. Now, what I'm about to say is probably slightly contentious, slightly controversial, only in the sense that it maybe doesn't agree with some of the interpretations you've heard in this portion of Scripture before. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You see, some of the writers, maybe even some of the ministers who have preached on this, they think that what Solomon is doing in the first section here is giving advice about financial vestments. 
giving advice about taking financial risk. So a lot of the writers will go for that. Maybe you see from just how it starts in chapter 11. Maybe you see where they're coming from at least, do you? What does it say? Cast your bread on the waters. You know, give, look at verse 2, give a portion to seven or eight. Maybe the idea of sending out your money, investing your money, cast your your money, you know, taking a risk with your finance. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with that uh, tonight. I'll, I'll give you a couple of reasons why I don't think it's a, about that. The first one is maybe a little bit obvious. If that was about taking f- risky or taking a financial risk, that was this was advice about that, I think it would be <laughs> rubbish advice. Because this is what's basic economics. If you're going to take a risk with your finance and an investment, what do you want a chance of back? If you're going to take a risk, you're only going to take a risk if you're going to get a lot of, you know, if there's going to be a big return for your money, right? That's the only reason. Come on, that's basic economics. That's why anyone... But look what Solomon says. Is that what he promises you in verse 1? Cast your bread upon the waters. What are you going to get back? A big investment? Well, actually, you're only going to get that same bit of you only get the same bit of bread back. So, if it was advice about risky investments, honestly, I think it's not about that. But if it was, it would be poor advice. That's one thing. Second thing. Second thing. I don't think it's about risky financial investment because, quite simply, that's not what it says. You see, what happens is a lot of people, they'll take verse 2 and they'll just try and twist it slightly to make their point. So they want verse 2 to say, okay, spread your money amongst a lot of investments. Right? That's the way they read it. That's what they want it to say. But look at verse 2. That isn't what it says, is it? What does verse 2 say? It doesn't say spread a portion amongst. What does it say? It says, what is that word? It says, give a portion to. So how's this for a novel idea? Let's take scripture for what it says. What was the word? The word was give. What is this about? It's about giving. This is much less about taking risky, you know, a risk in financial investment. And it's more about biblical financial generosity. This is about giving. And so what happens collectively in here in this room just now? When you, uh, 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 when we work out that it's about giving, what happens? We corporately cringe, don't we? Because uh, there's very few subjects in the world that we, we hate uh, hearing about more than what God wants us to do with our money. There is an element, at least a tiny element where we cringe, but I'm going to bolt the doors, make sure nobody gets out. We can't escape. So what does Solomon say about Christian giving? Okay, first thing he says is this. He says that we should, if we're Christians, we give generously, but without expectancy. Now, I'll ask you to do this. If you look at verse 1 again, now that we know that it's about giving and generosity, look at verse 1. What's the first part of it? Cast your bread upon the waters. Now, what happens if you do that? If you cast a little bit of bread on the water, 
what happens? First thing is, you're not going to know where that bread is going to go or end up. Isn't that right? You're not even going to know if that bread is ever going to come back your way. And isn't that the point that Solomon is making here? He's telling Christians to to give financially, to tithe, to, to give alms and so forth. But he's saying, cast it on the water. You know, you give. We are to give as the people of God, but we do so without any expectation that it is going to come back to us in some way. We give, but without expectancy. That's the first thing. Second thing, though, is that we are to give as we work hard. See, you probably know how this works, don't you? Um, as soon as <coughs> we think spiritually about giving, people take it to extremes, don't they? Like people kind of blow it, make mistakes with it, blow it out of proportion. They take it to extremes. Like, you, you know, like different people in different parts of the world. They hear that God wants us to give. So what do they do? They take it to an extreme They give everything away. You know, you hear of people doing this, don't you? They give everything that they have away. They give up their jobs. They they, they don't try at all. Give everything away and just say, Oh, I'm going to trust that God is going to give me what I need. Now, you see that idea? That's what Solomon speaks against here. Because look at verse 6. Verse 6 is an absolutely critical verse here. Now remember that it's in the context of giving. What does he say to you tonight? He says, in the morning you make sure that you sow your seed. The evening, what do we do? You make sure you withhold your hands. You see what he's saying? Is he's saying, if we're Christians, the people of God, we must work. Like we've got to work hard. This is the idea that we're not just to give generously, sit back and, you know, hope that God's going to sort us out. No, we work hard out of fact, sorry, we give out of the fact that we have worked hard and earned money to give as Christians. I've written it down like this, that this biblical instruction to give liberally, what should it do? It should motivate you and I to work industriously we're to give as we work and work hard and then the third one here is that we are to give generously now I was on the phone last week to an office bearer from a church in a different part of the world we're on the phone for a long 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 time and the guy was unburdening um, about the the financial predicament of his congregation, which maybe he shouldn't have been doing. But he was he was he was doing that. And you've got to believe me when I say to you, this is a well-to-do congregation where, where he's serving God. Like I mean, it's it's you know middle class, wealthy, the work, you know the people have got money, and yet he's saying. The, the congregation's really, really struggling financially. We can't do the work that we want to do or need to do. And what he said to me made an awful lot of sense. Because he said, the problem is that people very often, Christians very often, wait for the ideal financial conditions in their life before they give. You know, the, the Christians will, uh, you know, they've got an idea that, well, I'm not going to give just now. 
but maybe later on I'll give if, you know, I get to a position of financial comfort. Or I'm not going to give just now, but do you know what? See, when I've got a bit of cash floating about and I've paid off certain things, then I am going to give. And I want you to see that, again, it is that that Solomon is addressing here tonight. Because you maybe saw it when, when Gabriel read this out, that there's this theme of uncertainty all the way through the first section. I think it is three times Solomon says, you don't know something. He says, you don't know this, you don't know this, you don't know There's this repeated theme of like just uncertainty. And do you know what he says in the face of the uncertainty? Look at verse 4. He basically says there's uncertainty, but don't be like the farmer who waits for the perfect weather conditions before he does his job. Do you see the message? Friends, even if there is a certain degree of financial uncertainty in our lives, we as Christians still give. Like we are not to be a people who wait and wait and wait until there is, you know, just these ideal financial uh, conditions and situations of, of our life and then we tie, then we give. It's not to be like that. And I, 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 do, want, I do want you to give this thought because I thought, I thought long and hard whether I should say this, but we've hit crisis point in the church. In the United Kingdom, in the 21st century, now we really have. Uh, in one generation, I think you could maybe argue two, but I think in one generation we have lost the biblical imperative that Christians give to the church or give financially. Like honestly, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it would have just gone with almost without saying people knew their Bibles. For hundreds of years, people knew, well, if I'm a Christian, what do I do automatically? I give liberally, generously, not, you know, so that a minister gets a big paycheck or anything like that, but I know I give money. Why? To help and fund the work, the outreach of the gospel, home and abroad. And really, one generation, that's just crumbled away. And we have lost sight of that. And do you know what? Studying Ecclesiastes 11 this week, I've, I've got a question to ask you. Is this why? Why do we not give? Why do we not give more? Why do you not give? Is it because we're waiting for ideal financial conditions? Are you waiting for a better job? Are you waiting till you get a bit older? Are you waiting till you settle down? Are you waiting till you pay something off? Wait until you have kids? Wait until the kids leave home? You see, if you're Christian, and I only am speaking to those who are born again just now, but if you're a Christian, you see that that's not what Solomon is calling for here at all. We are to give generously liberally and we do so for the glory of our God so because we're dying we must be what's the first thing we must be generous second thing here is because we are dying we must be joyful we must be joyful so (coughs) excuse me every so often 
the Free Church of Scotland appears in the national news or in the media. Every so often, our denomination uh, appears in a newspaper. And a quick Google search (laughs) of these stories reveals the adjectives that are most often used about our uh, denomination or about Christians in general. So you ready for some of them? Okay, here we go. Uh, We are strict. We are conservative, we are traditionalist, and we are doer. (laughs) I could go on, I'm not sure that I want to go on, uh, but you get the point. As far as the sort of media uh, portrayal of of Christians, what what are we? We're we're joy killers, we're killjoys, right? It's the way that people look and consider Christians. Now, here's the thing, how does that tie in with this book that we've been studying, the book of Ecclesiastes. Hmm? Like if, if I was to ask you, we're coming to the end of Ecclesiastes, if I was to ask you what some of the main themes of Ecclesiastes are, what would you say to me? Hopefully, one of the first things you would say is, actually, Andy, there's been an awful lot about joy in this book. Hasn't there? I think it is seven times that through the course of these 11 chapters, suddenly Solomon stops, no matter what he's talking about, suddenly stops and says, and you must rejoice. Seven times he says that. So for the last time this evening, he turns to this topic, rejoicing, enjoyment. What does he say? Okay, well, first of all, what he does is he makes a positive call for joy. In fact, he doesn't. He makes three positive calls for joy you see at verse 8 rejoice in your long years if you get them verse 9 let your heart cheer then what he does is he gets a bit more specific look at the start of verse 9 who's he got in view who does god have in view he says rejoice O young man in your youth do you see he's speaking i think to to to, to you Honestly, I think he's, he's speaking to us. Look around. This is a reasonably youthful, young congregation, isn't it? And what is God saying to us tonight? He says, especially us, especially in your youth, you rejoice. So he states it positively. Then he also states this negatively. And can I, can I underline that? Because I think what Solomon says here is most apt for us as a congregation. There is an important verse here. They're all important, but important for us. Look at verse 10. He says, remove vexation. Then he instructs us to put away pain. You see why that isn't so important? That we as Christians are not to be focused on the negative aspects of life. Isn't that a revolutionary thought? That, that there isn't to be this self-pity amongst the people of God. That, that, that shouldn't be the way it is. That there, there shouldn't be a sort of brooding introspection amongst Christians. That we're actually to put away, we're, we're supposed to remove anything that will hinder joy. So you with me? He states joy positively, then he states joy negatively, and then he puts 
boundaries on joy. And I'll tell you what I mean. I need your help with this and I need your imagination just for a moment. Um, Would you imagine that your 16-year-old self was in here tonight? For some of us, myself included, it's not all that easy uh, to remember my 16-year-old self and what I was like. But let's imagine our 16-year-old self was in here this evening. And imagine they only read part of what Solomon says here in verse 9. So imagine your 16-year-old self heard this. Rejoice, young person, walk in the ways of your heart. (laughs) So can you imagine your 16-year-old self gets that message? Follow your heart. Or he gets the message, okay, just follow whatever it is that your eyes like the look of. You just go and... What's going to happen if your 16-year-old self is anything like my 16-year-old self? That, follow your heart, follow whatever your eyes like, that's going to lead to an awful lot of problems. So what does Solomon do? Look what he does. He puts boundaries on what the young should do in verse 9. Rejoice, yeah, you follow your heart and your eyes, but what does he say? What, what about this for a phrase? Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, you rejoice in your youth, but you've got to rejoice biblically. The Christians, we have to rejoice, but within the bounds of scripture. We rejoice, yes, But we rejoice aware that whatever we do, we are going to be accountable to God for that. And I think that's worthy of your thought, isn't it? Not just the fact that we must live an immoral life because we're going to be accountable to God for that. But I mean the flip side is also worthy of your thought. Do you see what the flip side is? Should you and I ignore this repeated theme of Ecclesiastes, we're going to have to give an account for that before God. This repeated theme of joy, 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 enjoy your life, embrace your life as Christians. If we ignore that, we will stand before our God on the day of judgment and we will have to give an account for our lack of joy and the fact that we have not let our heart cheer. So how about this? Let's not. We're closing the book next Sunday night. Let's go away from Ecclesiastes, making sure that that, that we don't let this theme of joy fall in deaf ears. We try and embrace our lives as Christians because, let's face it, of all the people in this city, we are best placed to enjoy our lives, aren't we? Why? Because we have the gospel. We have Christ Jesus. We know, you know, that even if everything is falling apart in your life tonight, everything is just falling apart around you, you know that should you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, what will you find? You'll find contentment. You'll find peace. And you will find real, true joy. Because we're dying, but much more because of the gospel, we're to be joyful. And then the last thing is this. Because we are dying, so we should be 
generous because we're dying. Because we're dying, we should be joyful. Last one, uh, because we're dying, we should be holy. Um, honestly, no nonsense. I think that what we've got in front of us tonight is one of the greatest pieces of writing in all of human history. So I think since the dawn of time that the subject of death has never been written about with such eloquence and such power as in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 8. It is spectacular. So what does he say? First of all, what he does, Solomon compares death to a coming storm. A coming storm. You've probably noticed, if you've been here for the sermon series, that Solomon, he just can't stop speaking about the sun in the sky, under the sun, under the sun. I think it's 34 times in this book Solomon speaks about the sun. But what happens right as he's closing the book here? What happens? Actually, he likens death to a storm that covers the sun. Do you see it? He likens our decay and our death to the darkness, the gloom that is going to come. It's going to envelop. It's going to cover over the great light in the sky. Death like a coming storm. But then he likens death to an old mansion house that is in decay. And I I reckon you've seen these sorts of things, haven't you? Maybe even on Facebook, these series of photographs. You've seen it in the past, have you? An old mansion house, maybe in the deep south in the States. An old mansion house that is, is derelict and is rotting away. Or maybe even a castle. Let's go for a castle in Scotland. And, you know, it's left to, to ruin and it's empty and it just rots. Yeah, well, see that poignant scene and it is, isn't it? It's always a sad scene. That's what he likens to the decay that we will face as death approaches. And I know it's late, but we're, we're coming into to land with us. And I just want you to see the detail of what he says. I know it's late, but look at verse 3, because it is, it's, it's beautiful in some ways. Look at it, he says, this formerly strong man, he cannot stand up straight. Do you see death comes, the decay, he is bent. And and the old man, he's losing his teeth, isn't he? The grinders are few, and his eyesight, see the decay, his eyesight is dimmed. Verse 4, he can't sleep, you know, he's up at the sound of a bird. Yet, oh, it's horrible, he's up at the sound of a bird, yet he's losing his hearing, because the daughters of song are brought low. And then you go into verse 5, which is the worst of the lot, because the old man's hair begins to turn grey, like an almond tree in blossom. And the mobility goes in old age, like a grasshopper dragging himself along. And the passion, the passion, I won't say too much about it, but the passion fails in old age. And all that is precious, it seems to break doesn't it? And in the end, look at verse 7. What happens? All of this, this horrible decaying process, it leads to death, to dust we return. Now, you surely agree with me that it is, it is eloquent, isn't it? Even though it's about death, it is, it's beautiful in some senses. But the question we ask is, what's the point? 
Like we're, we're supposed to act. We're supposed to respond to this. How do we respond to this? Did you notice there is a phrase here that is very famous? There's a phrase here that you know, I'm sure. It is a phrase that has been used in literature for generations. It's a phrase that has begun Hollywood films. It is a phrase that parents for years have taught their kids. And you see it in verse 1 of chapter 12. In the face of this decay and death, what do we do? We remember our Creator in the days of our youth. And he is speaking not just here to the young. He's speaking to all who are not on the verge of death. So I end with these two things. Okay, one, we see here that remembrance is not just for the Lord's table. Remembrance isn't just for communion. Like you, you were here this morning, most of you, weren't you? And what were we commanded to do this morning? We come to the Lord's table and we remember. We remember our Lord. We remember Christ. We remember what he has done for us. I think we are in a reformed church. We're, we're kind of good at that. We're, we're adept at that, aren't we? We bow our heads and we pray at the table. We, we, we remember the Lord's death. And what is this here? Are we not confronted with the very same thing? Do you see, it is not just at the table where we are to remember who Christ is and what he has done. We are to make time throughout our lives, listen to me, regularly, daily even, to meditate and ponder upon Christ. Ponder, remember, meditate upon our creator, our savior, our Lord. Remembrance is not just for the table. But the second thing, and we end with this, surely, if anything, we learn in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 that time is running out. Because I've said, I don't know, 20 times there that I find this section of Scripture powerful. Why is it powerful? It's powerful because it's not just describing death. It's describing your death, my death, isn't it? That unless we are taken early, every single one of us in here is going to go through all of that decay. We go through it all and we face death. Time is running out. And so I am by asking you, given the fact that time is running out, where do you stand before God? Where do you stand before Almighty God, the one who will judge the earth? Friend, are you a Christian? Are you born again? If you are not a Christian tonight, then I would ask you to see here in Ecclesiastes your death. I would ask you tonight to feel that indescribable pain in your chest. To see death. To feel your death. And to remember. And what must you remember? 
you remember that Christ Jesus has died to defeat death. You remember that on that cross, He has died to destroy sin. You remember that He has said, if you repent and believe in Him, that you will be forgiven for your sin. Tonight, in Ecclesiastes, look at your death. Remember your Creator while you still have breath in your lungs. Let's pray.